What do I do today? It's a question I've thought a lot about. For most of us, the answer is go to work. We've got jobs to go to, money to be earned. Buy food, pay the rent, pay the bills, go out to eat, buy a drink, pay for school, get new clothes, pay for gas, insurance, cell phone, computer, bicycle, appliances, furniture, the list goes on. It seems fitting that this episode would follow the previous one in which I spoke with Jun Sun, a Buddhist nun who more or less lives without these expenses. Jonathan Elijah is our guest for this episode, and they similarly live with minimal expenses and choose to engage in work without actually having a job. Yes, I did say they, and we'll talk about this in our conversation. I came across a webpage Jonathan created on Patreon, an online platform for individuals to speak their mission to the world and request financial support, similar to GoFundMe and Indiegogo. I found both their video and writing to be beautifully expressed and articulated. You can find their page by going to patreon.com and searching Jonathan Elijah and see for yourself. Both Jonathan Elijah and June Sun have ultimately found a life of material pursuit to be unfulfilling. Of course, they both eat food and enjoy a warm bed and comfortable clothes, but their list of material desires ends about there. Many of us who hold jobs and make money might also feel content with relatively few material possessions. Monks and nuns and individuals like Jonathan who choose to live this way are not completely separated from the monetary system. They depend on people who wish to support their lifestyle by contributing financially or otherwise. Why would anyone want to support their lifestyle? And what is the virtue of such a lifestyle? We explore these questions and more in this conversation. Welcome, my friend. Thanks for having me. Jonathan Childs, Elijah Wild, Captain Bluebird. Those are some of my names. <laughs> what, what else we got? What are some other names? Uh, well, I always tell people anything but John, nicknames encouraged. Uh, and recently, someone took me up on that and just started calling me Sebastian. <laughs> <laughs> What are the origins of these names? <laughs> I can go through. There's, there's a lot of stories there, of course. Um, well, Jonathan Childs is my birth name. It's my dad, it's Jonathan Jordan Childs. My dad said he named me after the two best basketball players he knew, his brother Jonathan and Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> and the last name Childs. Elijah Wild is from... Um, so Elijah and Wild are separate stories. The name Wild is from my ex-wife and I, uh, when we got married, decided that instead of taking either of our last names, we wanted to invent a third name to take um, and came, came up with the name Wild. So we did never end up legally changing our names because uh, to do so, even when you're getting married, if it's a third name, costs like a lot of money. Really? <laughs> yeah, it takes a lot of time. Um, 
So we never officially changed it and then got divorced a couple years later. But I hung on to the name Wild as, you know, for my art, I signed my paintings Wild. Um, and then Elijah was given to me by, it was like sort of the first person I dated after um, being with my wife, who I felt like was really almost just like a physical manifestation of music. Like it, it really was, I, I feel like that marriage ended in large part because of realizing that I needed to recommit myself to the practice of music um, in a really serious way. And the first person that sort of started shepherding me through, because, you know, I, I just, I've been writing songs since I was 13, on average, like one a month for, you know, 15 years or whatever it had been. Um, but just never felt comfortable with staying out late or like the bar scene and just never really wanted to um, pursue music in the way that it had been presented to me that one pursues it if they are serious. I always thought tour, like going on tour and like living in a, just like having to be somewhere different every single night and just sounded horrible. <laughs> And I think it's funny you say that because one thing that um, one thing that I wonder about with you is your your threshold for comfort. Yeah. And and what seems to be a very low threshold, you you seem to be fine roughing it, like really roughing it. And speaking as someone who has experienced roughing it to a certain degree. Um, I'm more experienced with roughing it out in the woods, which I think is easier than roughing it in a city. Yeah. And I don't know for sure, you know, one reason I wanted to invite you is to hear your day-to-day <laughs> -day experience mm -hmm. in, in Philadelphia and in cities. But, um, you know, it, it's my understanding that you do kind of rough it in the city. Yeah, to some extent, you know, it's, I've always been very fortunate with it, so it's never been too rough. Um, you know, there are people that sleep outside on the streets every night. And that's a whole other level that I have not experienced. Um, there's been times where I thought I was going to have to sleep on the streets, but I have never yet actually had to, you know, plop down on a piece of sidewalk. Um, so, you know, I'm in the middle. <laughs> You've got a network. I have a good network, yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty good. I've been pretty fortunate in being able to expand that network as well uh, when necessary. Um, but I think one of the things about me that's so strange is that it's just not at all a way of living that I came naturally to. It's very much the just complete polar opposite to um, like who I was 10 years ago. Yeah, let, uh, let's <laughs> let's get into it. So, yeah. Jonathan Child, Elijah Wild, Captain all started Bluebird. with Jonathan Child. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's go. Can we get into the story of Jonathan Child? So where, where are you from, and and what's this life that you're talking about was so different from who you yeah. are now? Yeah, it's it's good for me to look back and remind myself because I'll tend to get frustrated, you know, with just where I am currently. And, but looking back, it's just, 
does boggle my mind a little. Um, so when I was a kid, I was super, super shy. I really didn't have, I moved when I was in second grade and just never made friends again after that. Like I just went until mm, like maybe eighth grade. So yeah, almost five years where I really didn't have like even one friend. It was just me. Um, and I don't like, ugh, it was just the worst. <laughs> feel so bad for, you know, just the way kids treat each other is so unfortunate. Why do you think that is? Why why didn't you have friends for that time? I think there's a lot of reasons. I mean, I was always super shy and sensitive. Uh, and even the friends I had before I moved, I remember being really sort of anxious and had trouble really like trusting um, that they liked, like would really cared about me um, when I was two. So I was born in New Zealand, like if we're really going to take it back. I was born in New Zealand. Um, and my mom pretty quick, right around when I was being born, my mom was realizing that she wasn't necessarily in love with my dad, um, and didn't necessarily believe in the religion that he was a minister of. So they were out there to try and spread this religion. Um, and I think I was really brought into this, into this world, this like ungrounded place. Like I was sort of brought in on the other side of the world to somewhere where my mom had no support. Um, and was really alone. And I think I've sort of carried that with me for a long time um, and have done a lot of work to sort of come through that and to find stability and in the instability. Um, but yeah, so it's partially just, you know, the weight that I carry with me of um, anxiety around feeling at home, like trying to really feel at home. And then all obviously too, just, you know, the way that kids sort of form clicks. It was a small school and uh, most of the kids I wanted to be friends with had been friends with each other since they were born pretty much. And I came in in second grade. And <laughs> uh, second grade was just a little too late. So I was never really able to kind of be at home. And I think a lot of that was my just natural temperament, but you know, it's a mystery. I don't want to pretend to know exactly why. <laughs> Needless to say though, or I, I need full to say or whatever. <laughs> Around seventh or eighth grade, I realized that I really just had nothing to lose and that I needed to learn how to have friends. And I just, at that time, um, Everyone in the school, like all the kids in seventh grade or whatever, would all go to this hoagie place after school on Fridays. And even though no one invited me, I realized I could still just go and just sit at a table and just get used to it. <laughs> Find a way of was this back fitting in, in back in the U.S. Yeah, so I was only in New Zealand. Yeah, I should say for uh, like a year and a half, and then we moved back to the U.S. Australia for like a month or two, and then the U.S. And where in the U.S.? Um, Glenview, Illinois another little church town. My parents did stay together, you know, until I was 12 or 13, even though my mom was really questioning the relationship from the time I was born. I didn't know that at all until I was like 12 when they split. Uh, I ended up having two other sisters along the way. Um, and in Glenview, I had a couple friends, two, two friends mostly. One moved away and then I moved away from the other one. 
Hey, kitty cat. You know, I, I, before we move on, though, I am struck by that thought. Um, it's foreign to me. I don't know what it's like to not have friends. And I think at this point, you, you don't know either. You, you seem to have <laughs> yeah. some great friends now in your life. But just thinking back to that time, like, were you just doing a ton of self-searching and, and like, self-work? Uh, what was that like? Did you... Um, I mean, did you feel the gravity of of loneliness at that time? Yeah, definitely. It was so intense. Um, I mostly just read a lot of fantasy novels, like a fantasy novel, three hundred pages a week or so. And and I suppose that was to escape reality in some way. To have friends, you know, <laughs> to have some sort of create reality. Yeah, I, guess, I should say to step into somewhere where I could be exchanging ideas with someone other than just in my own mind. Um, and I mean, were kids, were they actually mean to you or they just ignored you? A combination. Yeah. I'd say 90% ignored me, 10% mean, something like that. <laughs> Um, and then a lot of the kids that were mean to me, I ended up being friends with like later, I, you know, what sort of like cracked the code eventually. Like I just like figured out how to like play the game. Um, at first, like when I, in like seventh or eighth grade, I like figured out that I could sort of just kind of like come in and out of situations and just like really like be my full weird self. Cause that was a lot of it. It's just, I'm just naturally a very strange person. Like there's just something about me that's inherently weird. <laughs> and I, when I was a kid, I did not know what to do about that. You know, the little bits of it that would show, I'd be made fun of. What What were the little bits? Like I crossed my legs like a girl, you know? While like, sitting. Yeah, like I would have my knees close together instead of far apart, and I got made fun of for that. You know, so just like a little, even like a little thing like that, where I would wear like sort of like I thought like super colorful clothes were really cool, and I had these like weird hand-me-down super colorful clothes that I thought were awesome until I started being made fun of for them. And so then I started like dressing more like preppy to try and like just blend in and like not, you know, lean more to the have people ignore me side rather than the mean side. I would try and like mimic what other people were doing. But even just the way I think, I think it's like, I like, I'm just super sensitive and like really particular. Um, yeah, and it was just like, I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I feel like I'm taking you down a wormhole, but yeah. you know, where does that come from? Do you, how much of that is nature or nurture in, in, as far as you see it? Well, I feel like, you know, I think I, in a lot of ways, am like the youngest I've ever been now. I feel like I'm more in connection with who I was meant to be as a child than I ever really had a chance to be as a child. Hmm. Um and it definitely is a weird person. Like I do, you know, one thing is I prefer like gender neutral pronouns. I've been realizing that um, a lot of my confusion about who I am is wrapped around trying to fit into some sort of like masculine identity that I've just never really related to. I think a good place to start trying to understand me is really just to sort of think of me as a girl. Like, lucky for me, I'm perfectly fine with my body. I don't have any, like, dysmorphia about, or, or you know, I don't want to, I don't even know the right terminology to use here. I, I don't understand necessarily the experience that other people have had. Um, 
around just feeling like they're in the wrong body. I just think that sounds horrible. Other than my beard. I just wish I didn't have a beard. I feel like it's confusing. It doesn't grow in right and makes me look more masculine than I feel. <laughs> um, so a good place to start is just to think of me as a girl. That's why I cross my legs like a girl, I guess. <laughs> but um, I tend to feel most comfortable sort of right in the middle of a lot of things. Like to have this balance between feminine and masculine. And so like I have, you know, some weird gold shiny thing on with just like a t-shirt and jeans. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like pretty classic. Or like I have one hand that's fingernail. My left hand, I paint my fingernails and my right hand's not painted (laughs) just partially because i use my right hand for guitar and it all just chips off but i also really like having one hand painted and one hand not painted Um, and real quick is is left traditionally associated with masculinity i think femininity would femininity yeah the left left would normally be the feminine side and the, the right is the more like doer masculine side and is that intentional and which hand you choose to paint the nails um it's I mean, it really came about this way primarily from practic- the practicality of that I used to paint both hands and my right hand from guitar would just get chipped immediately. Um, but I do feel that it really suits. Like in general, I've been noticing that my whole left side feels way different than my right side. This is something I've been fascinated by for years. Is even just like noticing like how the world feels differently if I like cover one eye and then cover the other eye. Like, you know, the different halves of our brain control the different eyes and different arms. And the two halves of our brain are supposedly, like, not super connected. Like, they are connected, but, you know, there's been examples of people that have had that connection severed. And they can still function, but it, like, does these very interesting things. Yeah. Um, And I've definitely really been fascinated by sort of coming to know both of my sides uh, separately. And in general, to sort of view myself as a plurality. Part of why I like they, them pronouns is because I also feel like I'm not really a singular thing. I'm like this collection. It feels more accurate to me to think of myself as a collection of things. Um, so I still get confused. I misgender people left and right. So I'm never like offended if people misgender me. Um, but I just think it's really interesting to draw attention to gender and to the ways that it just subtly programs us. Every time you use you know, a pronoun, every sentence, it just is like weasels its way in there. And like, next thing you know, you're like, think you know a person. It's like, oh, you're a guy. I know what guys are like. <laughs> so yeah. what gender pronouns do you prefer? I've been using they, them, um, as I think it's just sort of the most practical, already exists within the language, gender neutral pronoun. Um, and there are circumstances where people just use that naturally for a single person uh, and then there are other circumstances where it is confusing and that was why it's like for a long time I didn't want to um, make a point of it because for me myself it's like I'm mostly focused on my own inner exploration of who I am and like what other people think of me isn't as important it's helpful when people can really see who I am and support that um, but I think that what was really the turning point for me was realizing that it's it's not just for my benefit at all. It's like I really do believe that as a society, we need to develop a place in our language for gender neutrality. Like a, just a safe zone, a way of expressing 
a way of saying, talking about someone that doesn't immediately categorize them into this like binary personality system based on their genitalia. Like, and I just know there's so many people that feel a lot more sensitive about it than I do. Um, and that are less privileged than I am in a lot of ways too. Like I just am sort of good at speaking and have a supportive family and white skin. And so I was like, all right, I can take one for the team and just really push to have people use confusing pronouns for me and really use it as a way of encouraging. Like I always, I'm just super willing to talk with people about gender. I like love talking about gender. I feel pretty comfortable talking about it and all of the complexities. Um, and I would rather, like, I just want to be like sort of the first line, you know, it's like, I like being the first person that people talk to about these things because I'm good at it and I don't mind, you know? So I've been like, okay, I really need to like just push for this, not for my own sake, but more for supporting a cultural shift that I really believe in. Um, and that I just have been exposed to more and more people that really do feel strongly for themselves, that it's something that, that they need to feel supported in who they are. Yeah, this is definitely one of the reasons I was curious to speak with you mm -hmm. because um, having met people who, who speak along the same lines that you're speaking, I still find myself challenged to understand it. And mm -hmm. yeah, I suppose that partially comes from just, I feel so much like a guy. Right, it's yeah. like, yep, I'm a guy. <laughs> and there are very rare occasional moments where suddenly I do feel very feminine, very very mm -hmm. much like a woman. Um, you know, and it can even just be something as simple as like resting my head on my partner's shoulder and like sort of lending myself to be coddled and, and cared for. Mm -hmm. It almost feels somewhat like being like a child. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, as you said it, like you, you're taking one for the team as far as this overarching goal mm -hmm. of uh, sort of creating a different consciousness around gender in our society. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's at least definitely part of what I'm doing. I mean, from, I do also just feel that it benefits me directly as well. Um, I really feel like I've benefited a lot from especially deprogramming my own mind as to not thinking of myself as a guy. That's been what's been the most useful for me personally. Um, but that that didn't in and of itself feel like enough of a reason to take on the burden of having to try and get people to do something that is confusing. Like people, the main thing people like no one really cares that much about the gender thing. They're like, all right, whatever, be whatever gender you want. But the plural, the fact that it feels like a plural for people to say they, is just super confusing. Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like consistently having to ask people to step out of their comfort zone, um, just in terms of wrapping their minds around the language itself, even gender issues aside. Do, do you feel like they actually captures what you're, what you feel, or is that just a word in English that gets as close to it as you can find? I think it's, it's pretty good, yeah. 
I mean, I feel with words in general, I tend to be very aware of the limitations of language uh, and very rarely feel like words really capture anything entirely. But I feel like they does point to something that's true for me, um, for sure. I also actually sort of like it. <laughs> Partially because another one of my big things is trying to rebuild uh, human the human race's connection with the rest of life. And I, I always like to say, um, if it's good enough for the trees, it's good enough for me. You know, I just think that trees are the most beautiful, precious, wise creatures on the planet. And if their gender is it, then what's wrong with being an yeah. it? <laughs> Although some arborists are very familiar with identifying trees as male or female. Right, yeah, yeah. I've and tried day for trees as well. It can feel good. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, I guess with plants, some plants, they're called uh, perfect plants. Mm. I'm getting the name wrong. But they can um, reproduce without any other plants like they can drop their pollen into their own flowers right yeah um because the, i mean this is where gender I, I would go as far as gender is mm. related to sex like more often than not yeah the, ma the majority of us humans at least outwardly are identifying their gender with their sexual parts mm -hmm. right it's definitely the norm that's yeah, the, norm. the current norm yeah and so uh, like a male tree would be mm -hmm. one that, um, or a male plant. Gosh, I wish I had more knowledge of plant biology. Me do you, too. Do you oh have that? Gosh. I feel a like little. that could inform our conversation really well. The number one place where I feel like my knowledge is the most embarrassingly, la like embarrassingly lacking is around plants. And I do actually know like a decent amount, but I just feel like I should know all of the things. Like, I just feel like it's one of the most important forms of knowledge there is. Definitely for me personally, I just care so much about plant life and just feel like I don't know nearly as much as I want to. Well, in the plant kingdom, though, diamonds are masculine, I think, and lumens or something, or feminine. I forget exactly what and it's the, And the, the stamen basically shoots out pollen, which mm -hmm. is like sperm. Yeah. So the stamen could be similar to a penis. Yeah. And that, that, that plant then could be viewed in this human terms of being male male yeah and then what was the other one you said the other part lumen i could use that could easily be wrong but <laughs> okay that's what's coming to mind now is this something you're just thinking of now or have you you have you looked at like plant physiology and biology to sort of inform your feelings around this i had not thought about gender in terms of plants no um but I did have a thought I wanted to say, so in response to that, I do agree for sure, obviously, that um, the cultural norm is for people's sense of gender to be uh, related to their sex. Um, but I don't necessarily think that that's inherently the case, okay. or at least I, I think I think that at this point there's no way of knowing if it's inherently the case because of how much pressure there is for it to be the case. Because we're so strongly expected to have those two things line up, as long as the expectation is as strong as it is, there's no way of knowing whether or not it's inherent. 
if if it was really like if we really had a world where you could express any gender you wanted, no pressure at all, then we could find out how much it does line up with genitalia. And there probably is some level of correlation there. Um, I would assume. Well, but so the thought that then comes up for me is actually maybe it's not our parts, but could it be linked to our hormones? Yeah. So, for example, someone who very much embodies like the man and the guy, might that person have higher levels of testosterone mm-hmm. as opposed to the woman? You know, basically yeah. <laughs> there's the male hormone testosterone and the female hormone estrogen. And my knowledge of this is so basic, so I may be way oversimplifying this, but then could that be related to, related to this? personality traits? <clears throat> I'm sure it is. Um, although I've actually heard that like I would love to look this up and validate it, but I've heard lots of times that there's something like actually like 14 different sexes. Like it's not actually a binary thing. There's actually like tons of variation both in hormones and in genitalia. And that the gray area is actually just a lot more complicated than we're traditionally taught. I know that there's cases where like what determines whether something's like a clitoris or a penis is just like this ruler that someone decided at some point, like if it's this long, it's a clitoris. If it's this long, it's a penis. But they actually, you know, in like they develop, they're the same thing, you know, initially. And then there is like actually like this very wide spectrum of different hormonal possibilities that occur. That's not just male and female, but is way more complicated. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go learn more about that now because mm-hmm. I don't feel like I can really I know that it's somewhat true but I don't know the details <laughs> there's it's but it, yeah it's just a lot more complicated than uh, binary um, everyone has both testosterone and estrogen yeah yeah I guess in lieu of the the scientific research to to make like hard and fast claims Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's just come back to your own experience. Yeah. So, so yeah, maybe we can even go back to like 7th, 8th grade Jonathan, mm-hmm. who's, uh, you know, what, what are you discovering about that yourself at that time? Yeah. Well, one of the main things I was discovering is that I was realizing that the way I, I had sort of been systematically like closing myself down to try and protect myself. And I realized that I needed to like open myself back up again. Like I had this, this moment that I remember where I was walking down the street and I realized that everywhere I walked, I was always looking at my feet. I would look at my feet and like pick leaves off the trees and just like tear them up as I walked. And I realized I was like, oh, I should try looking up. And I remember just looking up and being like, whoa, <laughs> like the world is huge. Like I just sort of had this like, and it was almost like overwhelming for me. So I went through this process after that for weeks or months of really retraining myself to look forward and out when I was walking as opposed to down at my feet. And it was just a moment of, of epiphany. Hey, just, I'm going to look up now. I'm going to look up now and just like realizing how beautiful and intense and overwhelming and difficult it was for me to look up and look out and to take in all that information at once. Like that I had to just sort of systematically close myself off to it in order to just like 
think in general I have like a sensory overload thing where I'm just like so hypersensitive that I tend to it's like it's hard for me to I get overwhelmed with just sensory overload uh, and it was just a moment of me realizing that I, I could learn how to take it all in like that it was possible um, and that also sort of I think catalysted me I was super picky eater at the time and I was realizing that that was also this thing I was doing to like feel like I had like a to create an illusion of control for myself where like I just had an idea in my head of the foods that I liked and I just sort of felt like everything was like that was something I could control you know and it gave and I realized that it was actually hurting me and that I needed to really actually like op reopen myself to the possibility that I might like foods that I didn't know I liked and I started sort of again there systematically just I'd be like, okay, I'll try anything. And I just like drastically expanded like the amount of food that I liked. <laughs> have you have you talked with other people who who claim to be picky eaters and do you know if they can relate to that? I've never let's see, the main person that comes to mind, I like told him about that. I would be curious to see how they're doing now, because they definitely we're like, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not doing that. <laughs> like, Which kind I of don't like food. supports that claim. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as far as anyone else's experience, who knows? But definitely, um, I think it's pretty classic to do that for the feeling of control that it creates. But I don't want to speak for anyone else. <laughs> sure. I'm sure. yeah, just curious about that. Yeah. And then, like, the third and most major of all those was realizing that I could, um, so, like, that I could try again, basically, to make friends. That I could, I had, at that point, just sort of given up. I was just like, all right, I don't have friends. No one likes me. I just need to hide to avoid being attacked. And there was a, I got to a point where I was just so, I just felt the weight of loneliness so intensely that I was just like, I have nothing to lose. Like any bad experience that I could have would be better than just this monotonous drudgery. And so I just was like, all right, I'm going to like go to the place where I know everyone hangs out on Fridays. The and hoagie just shack. Like the hoagie shack. Frank's hoagie shack. No longer, <laughs> no longer Frank's hoagie shack. Uh -huh. It was an icon at the time. And I did. I sort of just... So, you know, I would just be there for as long as I could, and then I'd run away and feel like, just like process through all the anxiety and wow. just systematically trained myself how to have people like me, basically. And it worked to an extent. And then 15 years later, 10 years later, I realized, oh, like I know how to have people like me, but I don't know how to build actual, like genuine connections that have like long-term loyalty like that was something I really just realized in the last couple of years that I needed to figure out how to build like a deep loyalty within my relationships that's just a whole nother thing that I just didn't even know existed still until really like I feel like three or four years ago or something and what does loyalty mean to you loyalty to me is something similar to grace it's or mercy it's like the idea of having relationships that are capable of, that are tested and that are, that there's a commitment to. Like I'm, I really, 
I have this weird, again, another place where I'm sort of in the weird middle is that I both like, like to have, I like to stay really mobile, but I also feel really strongly about putting down roots. And so like, like I travel all the time, but I don't like traveling to places I'm not going to come back to. And I feel that way with my relationships too. Like I tend to have a, I have a lot of friends now. Um, but I've been, I tend to just like jump around a lot. And it's been, I think part of that is preference. And part of that is my still the same habit that I have as being a kid where I just never quite felt at home anywhere. And so I tend to just be like, when I stop feeling at home, I just go to the next place and try again. Um, but I have been really starting to kind of come back to those same homes again and again enough now to start building that feeling of loyalty of, of the idea that whatever comes up, we'll deal with it. Um, I think I feel like the, my first real experience with that was in, uh, getting married was this idea of, Hey, what about if instead of every time I get into a conflict with my partner, like what I would do in the past was just be like, am I supposed to be with this person or not? Like that would be the main thing I'd be thinking about. Like, is this conflict just a symptom of that this is a bad relationship mm, and I should mm-hmm, get out of here? Mm-hmm. Or is it something that I can learn from and overcome? Right. And I got to a point where I just would realize that if I just committed to learning something every single time, I would. Like I would learn something every single time. Mm-hmm. And it's like my partner might not necessarily know exactly what it was I needed to learn. Like a lot of times what they would be saying to me you know, was what they felt like was the problem with what I was doing wouldn't necessarily be the lesson that I would take home at the end. But I started kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt as far as their ability to articulate themselves and to just recognize that usually if somebody is offering me feedback, even if they're not articulating it well, there's probably something they're experiencing of me that I'm not seeing. And that I can choose to use that person as a mirror, as imperfect as it is. And I have been learning that, you know, there are times where really it's just completely projection on their part and it's better to sever that connection entirely. But I've really only done that like maybe two or three times. And when you say projection on their part, what do you mean by that? Um, Just basically that the things they're telling me I'm doing are like things that they're experiencing in their own mind, whether it's like something they've experienced someone doing to them in the past okay. that they think I'm doing okay. or whatever it is. But I, I can only think of like maybe two, two, really two circumstances where I've actually gotten to a point with a person where I felt like there was no basis at all to their criticisms of me and I needed to take absolute space. Wow. In, in, in like every other case ever, even when people don't articulate themselves well to me at all, I feel like I can always find something to learn from somebody's feedback of me. Um, and I've been getting better at not letting it, like I used to sort of let it like completely, I would just be like, all right, I'll just throw out my entire conception of reality and like try in order to incorporate what someone's saying. And I'm a lot, I don't try not to do that anymore. Like I'm at this point, it's like if someone is going to give me something new, it's probably going to be a little thing and it's not going to change the whole makeup of my conception of reality. But I tend to be almost too willing to let go of everything I think I know in order to know more, in order to learn and grow. 
I just like, I'm very curious. <laughs> so then bringing it back to loyalty, um, yeah, maybe like a, an actual example of loyalty in relation to everything you're saying, that might be helpful to understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, loyalty has been like a recent concept for me to wrap my mind around. I remember when I was younger, I just I was always like, what's the deal with loyalty? Like, that seems overrated, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, you gotta earn it. You can't just like expect me to be loyal. Like, that's just ridiculous. Yeah, and also, like, <laughs> there, there seems to be, um, you know, at least coming from someone like you who is radical in a sense, mm-hmm. like, loyalty actually might be at odds with that. I always thought it was. Yeah. I always thought it was. It actually was um, the Kendrick Lamar song was what got me thinking about it again. Loyalty, loyalty, loyalty. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, what is what yeah. about that song? I don't remember the lyrics. It just has a really expansive way of thinking about loyal. Like, tell me what you're loyal to. Is it? I don't want to Yeah. get too much into the song. I can't remember the lyrics well enough to feel <laughs> comfortable. <laughs> but basically, it just had a really... I don't know if it was just the word itself. It kind of just came to me at a time, I think, too. Like, that song just got stuck in my head for weeks. And I had just realized there was this, like, sort of vast, unexplored territory within that word. Um, And that I realized it wasn't necessarily at odds. So, again, like, a lot of my sort of positions tend to be fusions of apparent opposites. Like, I tend to do this thing, like, I, contradiction is the essence of the truth, is, like, one of my old song lyrics from back in the day. Contradiction is the essence of the truth? Yeah. Very sort of classic Taoist, you know, kind of just lifted that one out of the Tao Te Ching and reworded like, it. Okay, like, we can't understand hot unless we experience cold? Something like that. Also, just, in general, I feel like for every truth, there is an equal and opposite truth. Where it's like, there's something to, something about the limitations of words themselves that seem to, like, you know how one of the principles of science is when you measure something, you inherently change it? Yeah, yeah. So I feel like it's similar to that with words. It's like when we try and put a word to something, we inherently change it. And so in order to try and kind of correct that change, it takes an opposing sentiment. So, for example, let me try just like a random example and see what happens. We could say, um, well, I'll just go with my classic example. So my classic example is, is the eyes. And so how like your left eye and your right eye show you contradictory images, you know, like there are just like slightly, slight variations in the images, but that by combining those apparent contradictions, we have the illusion of depth or like the sense of depth is created. Okay. Your brain does some sort of complicated thing to like combine these slightly seemingly contradictory images into recognizing there's actually like a deeper transcendent truth. Okay. (laughs) Um, so, but in, so in this example, so it's like, um, to bring it back to loyalty, one of my big things has been trying to balance um, adaptability and stability. To find, to build a 
um, a sense of stability that's founded in the idea that we know nothing. You know, to have the, the primary foundational item be sort of just the ineffability of deeper truths. And then to build a methodology of understanding that like takes its own limitations into account. To recognize that narratives are tools that we are useful to the extent to which they're useful. They aren't necessarily true in an absolute sense. Um, and that a lot of times narratives can seem to contradict each other when they're actually just different perspectives on the same thing. Um, I have some, I have trouble, having trouble like bringing in some, like some good concrete examples. I tend to get a little bit like abstract. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I see if you can rein me in. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like we're sitting on a floor. Mm -hmm. That's a narrative, right? Yeah. But we're, I mean, we're also sitting on cushions. And we're not actually touching the floor. There's space between us and the floor. <laughs> we're floating slightly above the floor, but we're not floating or sitting. Like, we're both floating and sitting on the floor at the same time. There is an example. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> Neither of those is true. It's just words trying to describe something ineffable. But in order to try and get closer to the truth, you have to find that while we're both sitting on the floor... We're resting on the floor, but also there's space between us and the floor. And both of those things are simultaneously true. And so it's like, then we can try again. We can be like, well, there's like a magnetic thing that's pushing, you know, but it's just words are limited in their ability to describe reality. Yeah, you know, the word contradiction was very difficult for me to understand when I was a kid. Mm. Uh, even probably now, I'm like, it's still kind of a hard concept to wrap the mind around. Yeah. Um, but, but you're saying co contradiction is at the root of truth. Yeah. That, that everything really, uh, I mean, okay. So I guess <laughs> the classic example really is yin yang. Right. Where everything is yin yang. And it, to me seeing it now, it, it makes sense, um, why this philosophy is important to you being that throughout your life you've explored masculine and feminine identities yeah. as being many parts of this whole that we call Jonathan Child. Mm -hmm. And they can seem contradictory, but I mean, one of my things is just contradictions are not actually usually contradictory. It's more like our way of looking at them is overly rigid. So that's a great example is masculine and feminine are not contradictory energies at all. They're like inseparable in a lot of ways like mm. we all have both of these like you said like this sort of you know whatever more we have just so many contradictory things <laughs> and we feel differently all the time like that's another one of my big things is just i think that people try really hard to be like oh i'm a patient person you know it's like no one's always patient yeah <laughs> it's like i am both an extremely patient person and an extremely like there are times where i like want to get something done and i'll be like jumping i'll step on people's heels and i'll walk all over their words because i and there'll be other times where i can just sit and be patient what like I'll, i've been a nanny you know so i'll just sit for hours no problem 
but it's so it's I think that's a classic example of just like we try and think of ourselves as this singular thing like I am patient or I am kind or I am generous and it's just like we're never there's no there's nothing that we are always except for just what we are which mm-hmm. is sort of an inexpressible thing yeah yeah I wonder <laughs> have you have you ever uh tried explaining this philosophy to kids yeah, I always want to write, try and write a kid's book about it. I've definitely thought about like, it. What, I feel like <laughs> the best way to understand far-out ideas is to try and uh, use language that kids would understand. Yeah, I super agree. I think children's literature and children's art and everything is often just brilliant in this really understated way that sort of just flies under the radar. People don't even, I collect, the only thing I collect is children's books. I own almost nothing. I have like a couple bins of stuff. <laughs> but I have a children's book collection that I keep at my sister's house. Because exactly like you're saying, I do think that that's sort of the ultimate challenge is if you really understand the thing, you should be able to explain it to a right, four-year-old, right. eight-year-old. Like truth shouldn't just be something that only the intellectual elites can yeah. understand. <laughs> yeah, like the deeper things that really matter are pretty simple. Right, right. But, I, and I do, I think the main way I try and explain it to kids is a lot of times kids will make these sort of like definitive statements. Like, uh, you're stupid. Right, yeah. And it's like, well, that's partially true. <laughs> I am in a way stupid. I, I like this is a classic one because I feel like I'm both brilliant and complete idiot at the same time. Like there's this weird thing in my head, and I think it's probably true of everyone. Like there are certain ways in which we are brilliant, and there are certain ways in which we are clueless. And it's baffling how both of you can be both of those things at the same moment sometimes. And I just think it's a really a big relief when you stop trying to resolve it to that you have to be one or the other. Like that to me is really at the core of this idea of embracing contradiction is to give us a chance to really see ourselves, to give ourselves space to sort of breathe and just be okay with, oh, like, I'm just a mixed bag. Like that's been another one of my things. It's just like people are just mixed bags, yo. (laughs) It's just mixed bags. So where does loyalty enter into this? What are we loyal to? What are you loyal to? Yeah. Tell me what you love to. <laughs> um, well, in general, I have been realizing that I'm just super loyal to my relationships. Like, I just, I just want to, every single relationship I ever have, I want to calibrate the amount of space in that relationship to vary over time in order to most fully have it be beneficial for both parties. And I really just trying to do that with too many people like I've been trying to like organize in my mind like okay who am I supposed to focus on who's my inner circle who's my outer circle who's my acquaintances who's everyone else um and the main thing I've been really focusing is on finding that inner circle and that's really I think where loyalty is most important um but then first loyalty is to yourself like I feel like the to me it's like I think of I call it my relationship mandala so I, one of my things is that I think there's a big difference between se- being selfish and being self-centered. Like, I actually think being self-centered is just being honest with yourself about reality. Like, to be alive is to be centered in yourself. And either we are centered or we are not centered. But I don't think it's the same to me being selfish 
is when we have an unclear understanding of what self is. Because I also view self as this expansive thing, like just that everything is connected and we are, I am everything. But I am everything centered in my own perception, mm. in my own reality. Mm. And so I really do feel like the first loyalty comes to oneself. And then the second loyalty is to like the inner circle, to people that have really like been with you through things to the extent to which you... So earlier I was talking about that idea of using feedback as a mirror and that no matter how imperfect it is, you can still always use it. To me, the main thing I need to really feel like loyal to somebody is that they are cap that they to know that they are always going to do that for me mm. and that I'm always going to do that for them. Mm. Where even if I don't understand what they're saying or maybe they aren't articulating it well at first, that if somebody in my inner circle is like telling me that they have something they are witnessing about me that they don't feel like I'm aware of, I'm going to find out what that thing is. I'm not just going to be like, ah, oh, it's in your head. Like that to me is just a huge thing. And especially that I've been realizing for me to be loyal to someone, I need to know that they're never going to try and tell me that it's just in my head. Hmm. And that I am willing to take responsibility for the parts that are, you know, I think a lot of times when we have feedback to give, like I know for myself, I can sometimes be very clumsy. I'll be like, I know I have something that's important for you. I'm going to try and express it. And a lot of times all, the things I'll say won't be necessarily on point. But I, I have been working on really developing faith in that when what, my experience itself is, is valid and valuable. And that being willing to share that with people is a gift that I'm giving. And if I'm going to be willing to give that gift to people, I need to know that they are going to work on the basic assumption that they have something to learn from what I'm saying. And it doesn't have to be what necessarily what I think they have to learn. Like it might be a completely different thing, but that they're going to listen to me with curiosity, not and wonder as opposed to um, trying to just like be like, well, it doesn't fit my narrative. So I'm going to try and figure out a way of dismissing it. Um, and I've been feeling like that's the main divider for me and whether someone's worth my time or not worth my time is if they approach life with wonder and they use their intellect as a way of opening themselves to greater possibilities or if they approach their life looking for certainty and they use their inter intellect as a way of defending their certainty as trying to keep other things out. Mm. And if people are only interested in defending their certainty, there's no exchange worth having for me. But if people are open to wonder, I don't, I'm not so attached. Like I think, you know, a Christian could be both those things. Like my grandma is a great example of someone that is definitely Christian, but just doesn't think she knows the right answer. Like she knows what works for her and she's going to use any interaction we have to learn and grow and expand her sense of what is. She's never going to be like, well, but that doesn't fit with my narrative. So it doesn't, it's just like, nah, that's not Graham. And then there's obviously a lot of Christians that it's like, well, no, Jesus is the son of God or you're going to hell. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, that's fine. You think that for you, but there's no, there's nothing to be gained from me in interacting with that person. Um, okay. So this so, is, yeah, this is actually leading right into something I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I feel like one narrative that a lot of people hold on to, which you in particular challenge, is 
a narrative involving um, like the value of hard work and earning a dollar mm-hmm. and having like a job and uh, fitting within I guess like the ideals of, of the American dream um, but maybe I won't go out that far just sort of sticking with like this idea of, of like work being related to money yeah. because you're just from what I've, I've read of mm-hmm. um, journal entries you've posted online you are very considerate about um, you know personal work that you offer to people that you are interacting with whether it's like mm-hmm. cleaning a house or um, doing landscaping work whatever it might be um, but you know I guess I should just say that uh, what really sparked the desire to have this conversation with you was reading your Patreon page yeah. where you have put out your story to the world and, and you know, basically said, uh, I-, I can be someone who visits you and, you know, put me to work, whatever work you've got. Um, and I'll also just be there as, as someone you can talk to. And that's what you actually feel like is the best use of your time is when you just have just heartfelt conversations. Yes. Mm-hmm. And in, in so doing, you have also uh, requested that people sponsor you. Yeah, if they want. <laughs> if they want to. You know, that, I guess that was the mm-hmm. purpose of the Patreon page, though. Was yeah. like, here's my story. Here's what I'm trying to do. You know, if anyone can support this, I'll be most appreciative. And immediately watching that, I thought of, you know, someone who lives in the narrative of like pulling oneself up by their bootstraps, that that classic narrative. Like, yeah. I got here because I worked really hard mm-hmm. and I saved money. And who's this guy <laughs> who's just wants to like float around and drink tea <laughs> yeah. and, and talk? but doesn't want to go out and earn a dollar. Right. Um, and I'll just say well, personally... Well, I like working for money too, but... Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So before I just go on too much about this, um, you say that you are more interested in, in speaking with people who are open to wonder and mm-hmm. open to um, having a less rigid narrative of mm-hmm. life and reality. Um, and here's one, a narrative that you are really putting a, a solid challenge up again, up yeah. to, and I wonder what kind of interactions this has created. And if it's, if it has brought you into contact with people that, um, that say things like, Hey, why don't you, you know, get a job? Why don't, why don't you like actually work for your money? Yeah, for real. Yeah. Good question. Um, putting that Patreon together was was real tough like that intersection between sort of like the spiritual and like consciousness building and capitalism is just a frightening place like a lot of why I put that together was just for the opportunity to try and really phrase what I've been working on the lifestyle I've been working on in a way that would hopefully try and start bridging that gap Um, because that is one of the number one places that I would really like to make a difference is in the way we think about work and Mm. the way we define work Mm. 
and that's been a big thing for me for a while, has been realizing that there's different, there's different things. There's work, and then there's generating capital, and that those things are just not actually the same thing. And there's a lot of examples of how those aren't the same thing. Um, like um, everything is an example of that. But um, so in my case, for example, yeah, I do do a lot of free work. I go to, um, I mostly like live house to house and wherever house I'm in, I will cook and clean and yeah, just offer free counseling for people that normally wouldn't be able to afford that sort of thing. Um, I do just a lot of emotional work and helping people process things like gender and relationships and, you know, capitalism or interconnectedness. I have a little list of topics that I really like to talk about. Um, racial justice. Unschooling. Unschooling, yeah. <laughs> I've seen the list. Yeah. It was such a, so fun to come up with that list finally. Be like, oh, wow, yeah. Uh, it's, it's really powerful. Even just giving that list to people is an amazing conversation starter. Mm -hmm. um, racial justice especially, I've been really uh, just, just saying those words sort of gets people, like triggers something in people that I really am sort of amazed by and honored to have the chance to kind of especially help other white people process about race like it's just so hard as a white person to really see race it's easy to just be like oh you know obama was president like racism's over and it's just like no <laughs> it is not over slavery just happened jim crow just happened mass incarceration incarceration is still happening um so that's been a really amazing like if anyone wants to talk about race let me know. And, and to recognize that just having those conversations is work. It's work that needs to be done. It's really essential work. And I'm not saying that I like know the answers at all to necessarily any of those questions. To me, the work is just having the conversations themselves. It's getting to a point where we as a culture feel comfortable discussing our perspectives on those things so that we can, as a collective, start working towards solutions. My job is mostly tends to be just to get things started. Um, but so for me, it was a huge thing to just decide like, all right, I'm going to, for a while, I've been knowing that I put a lot of work into doing this stuff for the collective that capitalism is just never going to pay me for, especially because I specifically like directing it towards people that can't afford to pay me. Mm -hmm. um, but then obviously there are plenty of people that are just given capital. I mean, there's so many ways of generating capital. You can just have rich parents. It's a way of generating capital that's completely disconnected from work. Or you can win the lottery. Or you can... And, like, the amount... Like, there's this illusion that, like, the free market... Like, it's not a free market. We're not living in a free market. We're living in a hegemony where money makes money. And the more you have, the more you get. It's not, like... Do we really think that Wall Street brokers that are basically like have doing legalized gambling with you know, short selling is more valuable than elementary school teachers? Like, okay, well, then why do they make a hundred, you know, thousand times as much money? There's clearly, we have, there's this illusion in the culture that we like to believe that money indicates value 
we like to think that, you know, the amount something costs is actually how much it's worth. Um, but it's just not true. There's subsidies, there's like, it's a stacked deck. It's not actually a free market. Um, and so what I've been trying to do is really take back for myself value itself. And to really, I think that as a culture, we need to actually really think about what we value and not just accept what, you know, the current capitalist structure deems as valuable, which is usually material productivity. Like the whole thing's just geared around material productivity as if we needed more stuff. Like we could pretty much stop making stuff right now other than food and just try and maintain what we have and be like good to go. You know, there's plenty of everything, but we still will just destroy the health of the multitudes in order to make more and more and more and more and more wealth for the, you know, 3%. And it makes sense that everyone's super traumatized about it and feels really triggered. There's so many people that are forced to work jobs that they don't really like in order to have rent and food. And obviously it's super triggering for them to have somebody like me be like, oh, I just live for free in this really hard way that sounds, it sounds really fun from the outside. Like, oh, you live couch to couch and just like, don't spend any money. That sounds fun. Just like, don't think you understand <laughs> how hard it is and how little money I spend. You know, it's like when I go out to a bar, I don't buy drinks. I only go to things if they're free I drink water. I mostly just go on long walks as a, and have conversations with people and play music. I do things that are free. I don't spend any money. But anyway, it's obviously, you know, it's a, I have my whole own complex inside of myself about feeling, um, like struggling to feel justified in what I do with my time. And that was like a lot of what putting the Patreon together was about for me too, was feel, for my own self to go through a process of really being willing to say, what I do is work. It's work that I'm doing. Whether or not I get paid for it, it's work. <laughs> and then there's the issue of generating capital. And it's like, it would be great if people could just be like, oh, wow, this person's working for the greater good, for the collective good. I'll support them. You know, most of the people that are going to get, the, like most of the people that have all the money are these three percenters that I've never met, that none of us have ever met, that are locked away in mansions. They could support me in a GIF. Most of the people I have access to to ask for money don't have a lot of extra money. Um, and they want to usually spend their extra money trying to make themselves feel comfortable and feel like the job they work is worthwhile. And so people like buying luxuries and stuff. So, you know, that makes sense. I understand that. But, um, yeah, a big part of it for me was just to really be like, okay, I work day and night. All I do is work. Um, and wouldn't that be great if we would support... To me, it's an extension of unschooling. It's basically the idea that I think, I do believe that if we really supported everyone in doing the whatever work they felt was most valuable, that we would end up with something better than we have now. And that a lot of the unnecessary luxury production would drop off and people would have to learn how to live without their robots and, <laughs> you know, cafe lattes or whatever. Or they could learn how to make them think those things themselves if they really like them that much. 
but that for me, you know, I have a perfectly, I've, my life is amazing and I don't really consume any of that stuff other than just, you know, what comes to me secondhand. And yeah. <laughs> oh, there's there's so many so many places to go with this. Um, yeah, I guess first I just like to say thank you for sharing all that. That was there's a lot of passion that I can see just yeah. pouring out of you as you speak about this. You're you're almost it out of breath. So much <laughs> I know it's like ugh. <laughs> so I you know I uh, design the path of my life or, or I'm trying to mm-hmm. based on what I feel like is going to uh, you've probably got better words for this but make the world a better place what, what do you say instead of that yeah heal the collective I don't know <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I mean um, I so I, every day you know I'm, everything I do I'm like is this contributing right is this contributing to that yeah um, and and so as you're beginning to you know get a get a grip on what it is you're doing and owning the fact that it is work. Yeah. How do you see this kind of work actually contributing and, and making that positive change that you want it to see? Yeah. Yeah, well, I, one thing, too, as I should say, too, that I actually really love work. Like, I've every job I've ever worked, I loved. I've always quit when I start. And, like, that doesn't mean I love every moment of every day, but I actually do really like you know, having like that structure and doing hard things. Um, like when I worked on a farm for a couple of years, you know, doing 60 hours a week, it was really transformative. And that the reason that I've switched to doing what I'm doing now isn't because I don't like working. It's because what I'm doing now feels just so much more valuable than what I was doing. Like it feels the most valuable of anything I've ever done. Um, and to some extent, I do still work for money, too. I do organizing and raking leaves and whatever, carpentry. I'm available for hire. <laughs> but I mostly only like doing those things for my community. Like, I like to work for people I know. Because then I can do the secret underlying thing that I'm doing all the time, which I care way more about, which is really building deep connections with people. To me, the main thing that we need as a culture is deeper connectivity. So that has to do with communication, that has to do with just being, just sheer time spent together. It seems to me you're you're somewhat of a monk. (laughs) Yeah. You have basically given up material possessions for the most part, Mm -hmm. except for like the clothes on your back and um, maybe things scattered around here and there. Yeah, about two two boxes of stuff. Two boxes of stuff. Yeah. And um, at least at this point in time, you have decided not to like apply for a job in any way or, or like commit yourself to mm-hmm. some sort of uh, daily capital earning. Yeah, just I do pick up just sort of sporadic little bits of money. 
But then I can stretch $100 for months. <laughs> Just don't spend it, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> you have pretty much devoted your energy day to day to doing what you feel is healing whatever this feels of most valuable whatever yeah. feels of most value yeah and is that happening now are, are you like you know laying your head down at night and, and to go to rest and, and feeling like wow t you know today was another great day where I you know I feel like I actualized my potential you know, I mean, I think like anything, there are the good days and the bad days. Um, I think one thing that happens is people tend to be more jealous of me than they should be. <laughs> it's like my life, like, you, you know, mostly just hear about the amazing part, you know. It's like, oh, super flexible. I get to sort of do what feels most valuable to me. It's easy to be like, oh, I wish I did that. But it's like, it is not easy or fun all the time at all. There's lots of times where it just feels like, like, what am I doing? What are some of these <laughs> challenges you're coming up against? I think one of the main ones is just that I, people are just really, really busy and sort of stuck in their ways. And even, you know, even those among us who are really devoted to self-understanding tend to come up uh, on sort of parts of ourselves that we wish weren't there, you know, just old traumatized pieces that will flare up. Um, and I have, you know, I have those and I'll come up in those and other people. And like when, when, when those sort of like darker parts of ourselves sort of rise to the surface, I really struggle to remain loyal to myself. Um, and I'm interested, I really hadn't quite made this connection of self-loyalty until this conversation. I hadn't really thought about it before. Um, I'd been thinking of loyalty more about, like, with the inner circle. But I have a really, it's really, really difficult for me to continue to remain, have faith that what I'm doing is worthwhile. Because it's just really slow, long, subtle work. And like after a conversation's been had, um, I mean, on the days where I have six conversations, they're all amazing. I definitely go to bed being like, yay, this is amazing. This is working. But even just the next day, I'm like, did I actually make any difference? You know, it's like, it's really hard to know what lasting impact a conversation has. Um, and we just, there's so much input all the time, you know, all like in our culture, we're just bombarded with stimuli and messaging all the time I'm just it's like am I actually getting through to people or do they just like think what I said like say sounds cool and interesting and it keeps them entertained for a moment and then they sort of forget about it and go about their old way of thinking um, and I think it's some combination of the two but definitely it's not as like There, there are days where I really 100% just know I'm making a difference. And there are days where I'm really confused about what's happening. <laughs> um, partially just because I have, I do have to, like, I don't, my, 
my own health isn't super great. Part of why I've come to this way of living is that I've just always, my body has just never felt good. Like I think maybe it's like a, have my, have my family has this thing where you can't really absorb B12 correctly. So if you want like some idea of what my body feels like, you go read the B12 deficiency list of symptoms, I've had almost everything on there from like numb, like numbness all the way up my leg to like mood disorder. Um, and so I have to spend a lot of time just taking care of myself. And I think that out of everything is the thing that's hardest to feel um, really entitled to. Like it just doesn't seem fair that I should have all this time to take care of myself that most people don't get. Mm -hmm. And I really deeply believe that everyone should have time to properly care for themselves. Um, but in the current situation, most people don't have that time. And I do. And it's, it's really hard for me to be gentle with myself about how lucky I am. I tend, it's like really easy for me to slip into just feeling guilty. Like, especially on days where like I'm having a mood swing and I just am not really capable of being super productive and I have to just focus on my yoga practice and breathing and feeding myself properly to just like kind of get through until I can be productive again. It's really easy to like just pile on myself and really give myself a super hard time and be like, what are you, who do you think you are? You know, you're wasting your time just taking care of yourself and like that's when I really feel like the societal pressure on me to like get in line and get a job and do the thing you know especially when I'm already at my sort of my lowest well I yeah I suppose that that reminds me um you know what what is it that could ever really allow you or enable you to be a positive um, influence for people or a positive mm -hmm. presence um, because you know what you're having this internal battle mm -hmm. um, what am I doing taking care of myself um, yet you know I know you know that um, part of me knows part of you knows in order for you to be that positive presence for people that you're interacting with mm -hmm. you have to be at your best yeah um, so right that's the bad that's the struggle it's like I, and as long as I do just allow myself to take care of myself I can be that person and I have been getting better and better so like I used to be super shy and socially anxious and one of the main things I've just been working on diligently for years is figuring out how to be comfortable and um and spread that sense of comfort even in group situations and my ability to do that varies, but overall it's gotten just way better than it used to be. And I'm finally sort of getting to a point where even if I'm in a bad state of mind, a lot of times putting me into a group, like even just like coming here this morning, I was like, you know, not in a super great state of mind. It's been a sort of rough week um, for a lot of reasons. But just being here, I just instantly was felt like, just so grateful to be here and just like was in the best mood I've been in a while. You know, it's just like I do tend to find that when I'm put on the spot, I will rise to the occasion. Like I just have been finding that. And that's part of why I've kind of developed this lifestyle is because in the past when I wasn't feeling well, I would isolate myself. 
Um, and now, I, but I've learned that that doesn't really help me most of the time. Usually what helps the most is really actually like reaching out to people, both asking for help, which can be really hard and actually a really good way of bonding. And then also giving help to others is just such a good way of feeling better. I just find that one of the ways that I most often am sort of like, like if I'm like really trapped in my head and I'm like not in a good space, one of the things that gets me out of there the quickest is when someone around me needs me. And it's just like, as soon as someone else is like suffering near me, suddenly I'm just like, it will just be gone in an instant. And I'm just like, I go into caretaker mode and I'm there. Um, and so that's been really beautiful for me to realize about myself is that just sort of get, just leaving the house. Like that's been one of my big things is like, if I'm not in a good state, just walk out the door. I don't have to know where I'm going. I don't have to like go anywhere, but just to enter the world, enter the sphere, connect with people, um, and to remain connected even through the hard things. So that's been a huge part of it too, is that one of the main things that I've been trying to spread is a culture that has room for the good and the bad. And that's like what loyalty is about too, is this idea of building connections with people that are mutually supportive both of having fun together, but also of supporting each other through hard things. And so I've been really having a practice of, you know, making myself vulnerable, reaching out for support from my friends in order to not only get that support, but also to be deepening that connection over the long term. Um, and like the idea that sorrow is the gateway that leads us to joy is another one of my big things. Like I just do think that there's a lot more room for sorrow than we know. I think that a lot of times like frustration, anger, like a lot of other sort of negative feelings are just our attempts to avoid really feeling kind of just the natural sorrow um, that I think is really a very healthy and real response to the sort of inherently heartbreaking nature of reality. The way that even the best things you know, can only last for such, for, you know, a limited time. And so even the, the higher we get, like the more devastating it is when those things pass. Wow. Yeah. And so for me, it's like, even when I am going through these, like struggling with my own sense of well-being, I find that using that as an opportunity to strengthen my connection, I can use that as a way of strengthening connections with people to be open with people about my struggles. Um, and not, it's not at all just like, oh, like, look at me, I can be so fancy. But to really be real with people, like, nah, like, the life I lead is ups and downs. <laughs> like anyone, I have not figured out some cheat code out of reality. And that's one thing that I've been trying to be really upfront about with people, like, from the get-go. Because I think it's really easy for people to like either put me on a pedestal or be jealous of me and it's just there's just no need <laughs> it's like i'm just an other human struggling to figure out what's what and to do my best in the world and that looks a lot different for me than it does for a lot of people but as far as the ups and downs like i'm right there with with everyone else it's just really can be really hard trying to go so against the grain yeah that it raises this question for me um might even be 
getting back to like a contradiction yeah this contradictory nature of reality but um because you, you say that sorrow you believe is actually just this natural wave mm-hmm. that that comes and goes into our life it's like cleansing there's something about it i feel like it's deeply cleansing yeah and i so i wonder about the nature of that sorrow um because a lot of times uh when i'm in a low you know speaking of the ups and downs those waves when i'm experiencing a down a low Mm -hmm. um i do wonder to myself is this just like a natural wave of sorrow that is coming from some outside force um that is beyond my vision and I can't see where it's coming from or is there a real source to this that I can actually locate and find like oh this is why I'm feeling sorrow right now and this is what I need to do in order to eradicate that source and no longer feel this this depression Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm wondering what that experience is like for you like when you are feeling sorrow have you gotten pretty good at understanding the source of that sorrow or have you just opened yourself up to whoa whoa i'm in Mm -hmm. i'm in sorrow right now and i'm just gonna go for a walk and and eventually it'll melt away yeah i think that's a great question um and for sure it's a the with as far as the contradictions go like it's just both it's always both Yeah. yeah it's always just how things are cycles and it's also almost always an opportunity to learn something which I feel like is really like I feel a better way than blaming it on something is it's more of like looking at the sorrow as an opportunity to learn something or to process looking at what looking at the wave of sorrow as as an opportunity to learn so it's not about blaming it on something but it's about finding something new and I think I would also want to distinguish between depression and sorrow. Mm. I feel like to me, depression is more like um, almost a defense mechanism against feeling sorrow. Like to me, I think of depression more as like numbness and apathy and sorrow is more like connected, um, like irresolution, something like that, like heartbreak. So to me, those are definitely like, it's important to, I think, distinguish those two things. At least definitely like clinical depression, you know, would really be this sort of like lack of motivation would be like more tied in with that. Um, which I think a lot of times really deeply experiencing sorrow and creating space for that can look like depression. It can look like just lying in bed for a long time. Um, I like to just... I was, you know, taught Reiki. I always feel funny calling it Reiki because I don't think of it in the same way that Reiki practitioners usually talk about it. But I really love just sort of the that instinctive practice of just laying your hands on your body. One of the best ways I've found of moving sorrow is to just lie down and lay a hand on my heart and on my, like, sacral chakra, basically, and to just feel it and to let it move through. And that can look like depression. But to me, as long as there's movement... It's not depression. I think of depression as more of like a blockage. Mm. 
And so for me, a lot of times what breaks a depression is really finally giving myself over fully to the sorrow of Mm. how things are, Mm -hmm. of really being like, wow, life is just permanently irresolved and there's nothing we can do about that. That we can, there's these moments that feel sort of transcendent and resolved, but they just immediately break and that there's no escaping that cycle. And for me, a lot of times depression is when I'm either in denial about that fact or wishing that I could escape it. And sorrow is more like when I fully give in to that reality and just let it pass through me and like clear my system out. Um, And then I'm always sort of left with after that, this feeling of like, okay, if everything's sort of pointless and hopeless, now what do I do? Like there's this freedom in that of letting go of like, we're never going to get anywhere. We're never going to escape the thing, but we can do a lot of different things in the meantime. And it's pretty interesting and can be very fun and rewarding and rejuvenating and all these, all these experiences, all this joy. I mean, I do feel like, and that's really where the joy comes from. I think deep joy isn't based on like, it's not like I wouldn't describe like, Oh, I got a million dollars and I'm joyful. It's, like real joy to me is more about just recognizing that what we have inherently in this moment is enough and unbounding ourselves from the idea that we need to tie our happiness to what we have and that we can just really have a right to feel joyful at any moment and that we are 100% allowed to feel joyful at any moment. We don't have to tie ourselves to anything that we really are allowed to feel joyful despite how endlessly heartbreaking life is and so to me that's the connection is like sorrow comes in and just cleans out the depression like a tidal wave just like washes away all of the stuckness that i feel like is in depression and that clears the way for joy to come through and to infuse just the present moment And just the connection with things as they are naturally. Um, So I forget what you you actually asked me, but (laughs) (laughs) something like that. It's it's really a question for me. Hopefully lots of listeners relating to this. Just, you know, when these inevitable feelings of sorrow come up, um, how to understand them, how to work with them. But I think you, you really did capture it well, like, um, we all have our practices and, you know, one of your practices is um, just lying down and allowing it to wash over you, like putting some in- concentration into your heart and into your mm-hmm. your sacral chakra. Yeah, just feeling wherever the hands feel like they need to be. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But just lying awake, meditative, feeling, your feeling, just to feel. Yeah, yeah and also, like I guess, another practice for you in... in uh, working with sorrow is walking out the door which i think is a, that's an interesting one it's like one of my favorites yeah <laughs> where where does that take you when you open that door and just head out into the world oh, i just love it i love walking so much and like more and more all the time like the more i do it sort of the better i get at it and it just to like let my let where i go be sort of guided by how i feel and to just really be aware of any impulse in my body to do anything whether it's just just stop on a dime maybe like look around or like be in the sun or I also like doing sort of like parkour you know just like jumping off things (laughs) 
but to really just be aware and connected of whatever weird impulse I'm having and to just sort of not be too worried about how I'm going to proceed from the outside if I like suddenly turn around in the middle of walking one direction and go the exact opposite direction, you know, or sometimes I'll walk like super slowly, like do that, you know, just put like heel to toe, heel to toe, heel to toe. And other times I'll cover like a million miles, you know, in in an instant. (laughs) Now, heading out that door um, and opening that door into this, this big city. Yeah. Does that, does that ever like increase the sorrow as you open the door and, and find the city? Is there a part of you that wants to open the door and, and find nature and wilderness? I feel like I do find nature and wilderness. Like I just have gotten used to thinking of everything as wilderness. It's like the city is a wild place, yo. <laughs> it's wild. Like there's always the sky up there. That's really like pulled me back in so many times. It's just the clouds themselves. Especially in the city, I feel like it just like washes over you. Or like every little like weird like mullein plant growing out of a crack in the sidewalk, you know, or or whatever the tree that's had all its limbs cut off but still like explodes into cherry blossoms every spring, you know. To me it's or the pigeons or whatever, the squirrels, like so, so you, it's there. You can see wilderness in the squirrels, the pigeons even the people. The sky. That's what I was going to ask yeah. you. Like, how, how then do you find wilderness in, say, the concrete uh, buildings, the billboards, the electric screens, and, and the people? Yeah. I mean, in the, I think a lot of it's in the flaws within those things. Like, the crumbling building, you know? Or, like, the fritzing out screen. Like, I just love, like... I've gotten really into, like, technological... Like, when... When technology sort of messes up or freezes, I just think it's amazing. Like, I, I, at some point I was, like, using, you know, some random internet connection for a while in this apartment I was living in. It would just always freeze in the middle because who knew whose internet it even was. <laughs> and at first it was so frustrating to have it be constantly broken. And at some point I was like, actually, this is amazing. It's like this tiny little break in the spell, you know, where it's like there's this kind of creepy thing that happens with TV where you just get so sucked in and I realized that I could have this sort of developed detachment around what was happening by just appreciating the break in the technology and just the weird face that it froze on and just like having a moment to breathe and like maybe go get a glass of water or something and just like having that break so I feel like that's really where I find the wildness is it's just constantly like time is just trying to break shit down just every moment of every day everywhere you go and so for me it's like the breaks and things are really where I feel like I see the wildness come through and that's part of why it's like when you're inside there's not as many of those breaks but as soon as you step out the door they're everywhere like despite human race's best attempts to get everything spick and span it's just like whether it's litter blowing down the sidewalk you know or like whatever it is I just feel like it's it's you know it's madness out there it's chaos (laughs) it's not as orderly as we think it is i think i think we get used to thinking we know what we're looking at and so we stop actually looking at it but i think as soon as you like try and like sketch anything you start seeing what's actually there and it's always (laughs) mind-boggling if you really look 
Hmm. I'm going to try something new with you that I haven't cool. <laughs> done on any of the previous episodes yet. Yeah. Um, and uh, it'll sort of hopefully tie everything together right. and bring <laughs> us full circle in this conversation. Um, I'd like to hit you with sort of some rapid fire questions. Um, and of course, you know, take all the words and time that you need, but this is meant to be an exercise in conciseness and, cool. and just quickly, concisely capturing a point. All right. <laughs> your, your point. See what I can do. So the first thing I would like to say or ask you, um, What, uh, let's see, what do you want people to know about unschooling? Mm. My little soundbite about unschooling is that it is the belief that human curiosity, that, that if given support, uh, that human curiosity can be trusted. There you go. That's it. That human that humans are naturally curious, and if properly nourished, they will act in the way that is most effective for themselves and for the group, which is pretty against the grain. But I, I believe that. I don't like know it to be true, but I believe it. I think it's worth believing in, in human curiosity and its power. Now, have you uh, experienced unschooling anywhere or seen it put to, put to action? I unschooled for sophomore year and then had a sort of similar, more structured version of unschooling junior year, uh, and then again, more freeform senior year and the year after. Um, so that's my personal experience with it. Although I feel like what I'm doing now is unschooling, basically applied to, like sometimes I'll say, I'm in an unschooling graduate deg degree program. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Although I think I've graduated now. I think I now have a job of being an unschooler full-time, basically. Um, my sister's unschooled. My mom does unschooling. Unschoolingsupport.com is my mom's website. She has a podcast. Um, yeah, I mean, this comes back to the contradiction of things, but like there's the, um, I guess, right brain side of me or left brain. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I need to figure that out. But um, like I want to uh, have this thing to hold on to which is unschooling like what is unschooling what does it look like what is <laughs> right. it how does it act out mm -hmm. um and so when okay so when you say that you experienced so unschooling yeah. as a junior and senior what what was that what was that experience um yeah there's so many different versions of unschooling because it really is more of like a guiding principle and then people apply it to varying extents to whatever they're comfortable with um so sophomore year of high school, what it mostly looked like was I worked a lot. I was saving up money to try and go to this like literal liberal, liberal arts school in Michigan where you make your own curriculum so that I could more like unschool with other people there. That's often the hardest part of unschooling is finding other people, other unschoolers to spend time with. It can be isolating. Uh, and the development of the internet has helped a lot with that. When my sisters were doing it, there was... That was, the internet was new, and so it was hard to find people. Um, so that's kind of the hardest part of unschooling, is, is, is needing that connection and having it be hard to find. 
Um, but other than that, I spent a lot of time writing and recording music. Um, I you make read nice... a lot of books. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you, you were able to just pursue anything that interested you. What did you want to learn Pretty about? Much. Okay, go for it. Yeah. Build a tree house. <laughs> and did you have teachers? Um, I had like... Uh, I'm trying to think. I went in for some, I had a, like someone that came and did like specialized tutoring with me for some more like math and science-y stuff at times. Um, I guess that was a break from the unschooling because... Well, it was, I did want to do that. I, um, um, but I was sort of, lim- I mean, I didn't, I didn't do that much of that. It was just, you know, some, um... And that is like unschoolers will like the people that do unschool tend to at some point they're like, I want to learn math now. And what people have found is that when you actually want to learn math, you can go you can cover like seven years of material in a couple months. Like the reason it's so hard to learn is because people don't want to learn it. And so and they're not interested. They don't see why it's useful. And you're trying to like have this like entire classroom full of people you're trying to teach at once, none of whom really are interested. Um, but that usually uns- like when you're actually motivated to learn the stuff and think it's fun, you know, or you f- decide you want to, cause so you can, for whatever reason, when it really, you're feeling empowered about it, um, you know, it's normal for people to just cover a lot of the math curriculum way faster than you normally would do it in school. Um, but did I have teachers other than that? Mostly not really. I don't, I don't have like a super great memory in general. <laughs> I don't remember everything that I did, but um, in general, one of the main things I did whenever I, the couple of years that I did on school is I just worked a lot. Like the second, like in senior year that I was working like 60 hours a week. Like I was just like, that was the main thing I was doing. I worked at Starbucks and CVS and doing yard work and sort of learning about making money in the world that we live in getting to spend time with a lot of people that were older than me and learning about the music that they liked or we would listen to and, you know, the conversations that we would have. Um, so, but my, that's not super normal experience. Like I only unschooled for a couple of years. Um, but the general thing that people will do is they usually get really fascinated. Well, first there's the de-schooling process. So like usually if you take a kid from regular school and you take them out of school, people say in general to give, you should give like a month for every year that they were in school that they'll probably just need to detox. Like they'll just want to lie around and watch TV or whatever and like probably not feel super motivated. At that point, they're like used to people telling them what to do. Um, And so it takes a while to sort of adjust the idea of like, oh, I can do anything I want. At first people are like, all I want to do is nothing. And it's like, okay, just do nothing for a while. Hmm. But usually after it's like, they say about a month per year that they were in regular school they start being like, all right, TV's boring. <laughs> what can I do that's like actually going to make me feel fulfilled and happy and interested? Um, and people tend to get really into like a couple things. You know, they'll just learn everything about dinosaurs or whatever until they've exhausted all the resources available and maybe like move on to the next thing. And then they'll want to learn how to build birdhouses or something. You know, and, and it's generally self-guided learning. That's the general idea. Unschooling is, um, yeah, child-directed learning or human curiosity-directed learning. Um, There's also, like, 
lots of different schools that are like somewhere in between unschooling and more traditional schooling that are a little more structured. Um, and it depends also like state to state. The state has various requirements that you need to fulfill. Like when I homeschooled sophomore year, I like had to do like weird worksheets and stuff just to like kind of meet minimum requirements. I don't remember most of that stuff. It was kind of boring. So I just blocked it out. <laughs> um, but my mom was really clear that like she wanted us to just do whatever we felt that we wanted to do. Um, a lot of times it's hard for parents to really give their children that freedom. Um, especially having been through school themselves. Like we had this idea like, shouldn't you really be learning all the names of all the countries in Africa or whatever, you know, all these things that they really told us were super important um, when we were kids and we had to go through all this pain to learn. So it's easy to want to put that on your kids. But anyway, this isn't concise at all, but I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I realized immediately I wanted to keep talking Talk about, about it. more. No, because I, I find unschooling to be fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, let, let's... Uh, tie a bow on the unschooling part just with one last thing okay can you recommend any books films any any bits mm. of information for people who are curious to learn more about unschooling yeah but that's exactly what i was about to say is uh my mom has a podcast it's called unschoolingsupport.com and it's great she interviews a bunch of unschoolers and um yeah it's awesome it's oh, a really good resource great, and she'll great. point there's also you know will point you point you towards more resources unschoolingsupport.com unschoolingsupport.com and if you yeah. look it up on iTunes is it just unschooling I think it's on uns- iTunes unschooling support yeah unschooling support podcast okay yeah alright that was our first go at being concise <laughs> <laughs> moving on um, so as I was learning about you and, and drawing this comparison between you and sort of like a modern day urban monk mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you would agree with that but just for for the sake of this, um, you know what what are you, what are you finding to be some of the greatest challenges, or, or like maybe just one or two of like the the greatest challenges you've come up against, in this lifestyle that you're leading. Well, I feel like the number one greatest challenge is just that most people don't even think it's a thing at all. They just are like, what? That's not a thing. So you must be not doing anything. And it's like, no, I'm a. Like, I sort of think of myself, like you said, like, I'm more like a monk, but there's, like, not a tradition for that in our culture, and I don't particularly subscribe to any, it's like I'm a, a preacher without a church, you know, so it's like, not only do I have to deal with all the things that a preacher normally has to deal with, and, you know, it never pays well to be a preacher, <laughs> but I also don't have a church, really, so the main thing that, the main number one challenge is just that people mostly there's no, there's no box in people's brains for what I do. So I'm constantly having to sort of explain from scratch this like very different way of existing that boggles people's minds. You're, you're absolutely on the ball that our our society, I mean, if, I guess if you had the garments, the robes for some kind of church, but being that you don't, um, identify with any religion really. Yeah. Um, it, it that it doesn't exist so much in our society as opposed to say in India um, for anyone who listened to the last episode of the podcast I interviewed a Buddhist nun and went but I think before she even became ordained um, she was living in India and she would walk through this slum every day um, and she would be with some other folks and they'd beat their drums and they'd chant and 
that honoring the spiritual lifestyle of a monk or nun is so uh, it's such a deep part of Indian culture and the people in the slums some of the poorest folks really on planet earth um, with such so little they would actually offer food to this woman and and um, the people she was walking with um, so it just goes to show like right you know when a culture truly honors the spiritual work um, that that it gets supported yeah that's it's hard to even think like next to that just like finding places to sleep is hard but if people knew what I was doing was a thing it wouldn't be hard <laughs> yeah it's people are confused because they think I'll just be like a regular house guest and like expect to be taken care of and I'm like no I'm gonna like clean your house you recognize <laughs> I'm gonna like cook you food and it's gonna you're gonna be glad I came <laughs> so actually yeah let's just go with that real quick before mm -hmm. we move on to the next question um, being that you've now put this out into the world, like here I am basically at your service, mm -hmm. right? Are people responding to you? Are you, are you meeting people that you didn't even know that they, they just like hear about this or is it mostly friends of friends within a network? Yeah, not, not yet. So far it's been mostly just like, I just, especially in Philly, I already have like such a crazy extensive network even just trying to remain connected with the people I know here is like, the longer I'm here, it just gets a little crazy. <laughs> um, but definitely like when I was out in Portland, a lot of that was like reconnecting with old friends um, or friends of friends. But really my best connections that I found in Portland were just completely, like I, I met this, I met someone dancing at an outdoor music festival and like, ended up hanging out with them in a park playing ukulele songs back and forth for like three hours. They drug me to an open mic like halfway across the city where I met a ton of people, went back with one of them and slept on their couch where I met a whole nother ton of people, ended up at a different community house and that was really what like kind of broke, like that was when I really sort of broke through to what I was really like looking for in Portland was just complete coincidence talking to strangers. And it's I feel like that really is where like the, 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 the best is to be found sort of is to make that leap. But it's hard to make that leap when I have a support system. Like it's almost impossible to do that in Philly because I just have so many people to go to first. And it was so scary. Like the only reason I even did it was because everywhere that I had been staying before was suddenly all booked at the same time. Like I had this pretty extensive support network and in it Portland. was just in Portland. Yeah, like I just have known a lot of people that moved out there, old friends and stuff. And it was just like, everyone was booked for this one week, all at once. Um, and it sort of led me to the first time where I like thought I might have to sleep on the streets and then just like sort of in the nick of time, like ended up in the pretty weird, like a couch in someone's studio where we weren't really supposed to sleep or whatever, like at four in the morning, <laughs> but did finally find this comfy thing to sleep on. And then like the next night was when I really like reached out to someone I met at the open mic the night before and then that kind of just like I was so at home there that they were just like you can come back anytime here's the code of the door and that was what really from there was like when I really started finding the people that I was felt most deeply soul connected with it was when I just the universe just forced me to like really make a full leap of faith out into the unknown 
you know, it's, I, I'm like forming this vision now of, of a village life where the people in the village, they might be familiar with someone like you. Yeah. They'll be like, oh, Jonathan's back, <laughs> back around. Like, you know, we got to have Jonathan over. It's always such a treat to like yeah. be with Jonathan. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I would, it'd be amazing to see if you can, if see you can sort of create that together. within the city. Yeah, I mean, definitely in Philly, I, like, pretty much do have that. Um, I've been sort of, like, a set rotation of houses where I can go and stay, and I've just been doing, you know, three nights per place or whatever. And it never for, it never feels like um, it's a drain on the people. Like, you're, you're always... I always try to stay, like, pretty far ahead of that, um, but that is part of why, like, I couldn't do that in Philly indefinitely, I don't think. Uh-huh. Um, but... Well, no, I think I actually probably could, but I would just, it wouldn't be just Philly. Like I also have like my grandparents live in this like church community and I've been realizing that I could probably go live there for like a long time. I keep running into old, like, like moms of my old friends that are all like, oh, you can come stay with us anytime. And I'm like, that would actually be really fun. So there is sort of this whole untapped, um, network. And like the thing that happens is like, I just, it's way before I get to be too much of a burden, I just try and challenge myself to reach out to more people. And it really just, I just sleeping on people's couches is the best way of getting to know people I've ever found. It just creates a sort of relaxed way of being together where it's like, you can sort of just be together and be separate at the same time and sort of go in and out of interaction naturally. Because I'm also, like, a really big fan of just, like, doing my own thing in a space with other people doing their own thing. And, like, a huge fan of just, like, you know, comfortable silence. Mm. And so it's, to me, that's one of the best ways of getting to know someone. But it's, like, I'm just, I hate scheduling, you know? Like, I, it's, like, once I'm somewhere, I want to, like, be there for a moment, you know? Yeah. And so really, like, sleeping on people's couches and in their spaces is just such a amazing way of really getting to build like deeper connections yeah i found while traveling the the places i would end up you know people were generally just really excited to have this new person enter into their space (laughs) have someone to share with um you know people are generally excited to to they once they warm up they're they're happy to talk about their stories and, and it actually can be yeah very therapeutic for everyone involved yeah and I just totally still do understand you know especially for people that don't already know me it's like having someone in your space is just can be really a commitment and a drain um and so it's like that's the other like as far as also like the culture that I'm sort of having to push up against that's a big part of it is you know just that I think in general, the way that people are together is sort of more stressful than it needs to be. I think we put a lot more pressure on our interactions than there needs to be. Um, and so that's kind of the expectation that people have of like, oh, someone's gonna be in my space. They're like, gonna be putting like, sort of like have this pressure or expectation mm. of how things are. Mm. And I just love being like, no, like I don't need to be taken care of. Do whatever you would just normally do. If you feel like hanging out, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and for me, that's how I feel most comfortable. Um, it's like no pressure, no expectation. Just like, let me know if there's anything I can do that's useful. Um, otherwise, I'll be working on my practices, you know, <laughs> playing music, going on walks, doing yoga, 
drinking water, <laughs> whatever it is. Okay, just a <laughs> couple more. All right. Um, I guess this is maybe there's two parts to this question. I guess one one part of it is what would you like people to know about gender fluidity, mm-hmm. and also what would what do you say to people that are exploring their own gender fluidity and feeling confused about it? Yeah. Well, I would say I think the main thing that I want people to know is that it's more confusing and pervasive than it's really possible to sort of be aware of initially, especially. I mean, I like, what catalysted it for me was my sister's ex-partner transitioned as like a trans woman. And when they first transitioned, it like, at first I was just sort of like supportive, you know, just because I was like, well, that's what you do. You'd be supportive. And then I was talking to someone that felt a lot more like not necessarily supportive of it. And it made me realize that I had really complicated feelings about it that I was sort of pushing down because I didn't want to appear like non PC. Like I wanted, you know, to be supportive of that sort of thing. I didn't really want to acknowledge how much confusion I felt around it and how I sort of realized I kind of felt like abandoned. Like, how do you get to not be a guy? Like, feeling like being a man in this culture can be like such a burden. Um, Coming out of like a patriarchal society that was really dominated by people with dicks, you know? And so I feel like I, at the time, felt really sort of betrayed and abandoned. and then so slowly over time realized that I also didn't have to identify with this idea of masculinity and that to really give myself permission to find where I feel that I actually do naturally lie on that spectrum and to start undoing the just like layers and layers and layers of programming that I really didn't even know were there. Um, and I still just like continue to sort of like come up against these parts of me that are associated with the idea of masculinity that it's hard to tell a lot of times at first glance whether like they're there because that's me or whether they're there because I've been told that that's how I'm supposed to be. I mean, I've been being pressured to be a man since I was born, you know, it's just like that's, and I think it's, it's easy to, I would say that the main thing is like if your response to people like, to be curious about the way that you feel about, like, for, so, like, for someone like me to be like, oh, I prefer gender-neutral pronouns, you know? I think there'll probably be a lot of listeners that will immediately have feelings that they don't necessarily understand. And I would just say to just be curious about it. Like, don't judge yourself. Let yourself go through whatever you need to go through in order to come to a deeper understanding of who you are. Um, and that really ultimately like people are people you know and I think that whether or not there is some sort of correlation between personality and genitalia is sort of irrelevant because even if there is a correlation there there's just so much variety within that spectrum that it's it's just out of all the ways that we could define who we are I just don't think it's as definitive as as we've been taught to believe that it is as being sort of the primary definitive thing about you as a person like, that's the main category that we sort of lump ourselves into. It's like, oh, you're a guy, you're a girl, you know, from the time we're born. And I think it's just really liberating if you can be curious about 
how that division has affected us each personally um, and to sort of try and take a step back to be honest with ourselves about how much of that feels good and how much of it feels restrictive um, because I think I think that in general we know ourselves one of my big things has been to stop trying to know myself and just try to be myself to recognize that the thing that I am is too complicated and confusing to ever contain within my own mind. I change all the time, I can be so many different ways, and I think it's really tempting to want to be certain about who we are, but I would just encourage people instead to be curious and to just really wonder, well, like, who could I be? You know, what possible ways are there that I could be? Knowing that I inevitably am just going to be myself no matter what I do, like, why don't we just like explore the possibilities as opposed to trying to limit ourselves to our understanding of what's possible. Well, I'll just uh, propose one last question. Mm -hmm. Try and round out this conversation. Um, and it touches upon uh, this element of contradiction again. And, you know, what you mentioned about loyalty. Mm -hmm. um, and really, you spoke about feedback. Mm -hmm. Feedback that you receive from people and that you offer to people. And, yeah, I'm curious about this contradiction or this uh, fusion of always being open to receiving that feedback and questioning who you are and how you can... Uh, improve or better yourself but also um, knowing where to stay grounded and to and to own a, a, a quality of yourself mm -hmm. well one thing is I don't know if I would use the word improve necessarily I would say like become into a greater awareness of who you are and the potential ways that you can be. Um, I do like using the word effective, like to just become more effective in our way of how we are ourselves. Um, but I definitely have very strong belief in sort of the inherent perfection of things as they are. And it's not exactly about improving, it's more, yeah, it's like a sinking into, mm. I think. Um, and sort of just like letting go of inhibition or blockages. Um, but yeah, I do think, I feel like what you're getting to is this sort of the sense of discernment. And I do think, so yeah, as far as feedback, loyalty, and contradiction, um, one of the main places I've been finding where feedback is really useful is in helping me come to terms with the contradictions within my own self. And in, that's one of the main types of feedback I've been trying to learn to give is in helping others become aware of the contradictions that I see them expressing. Um, and I think part of the loyalty, too, is this idea that just because there's a contradiction doesn't mean either of those things are wrong or bad or need to be negated, but to rather have a commitment to really accepting who we are fully all contradictions included, to be loyal both to ourselves and to, you know, the people we care most about. 
that we aren't going to reject them because of the contradiction, but that we can, and I think it's especially scary to receive feedback, to recognize like, oh, wow, I'm acting in a way that's sort of contradictory to my understanding of myself can be really undermine your sort of sense of who you are in a way that can be very frightening. Um, and so I've been really trying to, I feel like developing that sense of loyalty is really important in creating a space that feels safe enough for like that level of feedback to be given and received. And I think that we need to practice discernment in exactly, I do have been trying to be more discerning in who I like allow into my inner circle, like how seriously I'm going to take feedback. Um, because while I do think there's always something to be learned, um, it's not always what the person is telling me it is. And I've been trying to be better at um, really, yeah, like maintaining my own sense of reality and finding a way of taking feedback in a way that helps me be more who I am and not makes me think that who I am isn't good enough or that who I am is wrong or bad. And a lot of times, especially in heated exchanges, um, there can be a lot of sort of, like that feedback can come in a really n nasty ball, you know, and, and like a lot of times there's a gem at the center of that, but a lot of, there's this, all this sort of like triggery garbage that it comes along with. Um, and so it can take a lot of just sitting with it and being with it and being open to it to really find what the lesson is. Um, but I do just feel like there, for those of us that are willing to sit through all that hard stuff and really remain open, there, I just feel like there is just always a gem in the middle. Mm. And I think that is one thing that I really have taken to living by, um, is to just... Yeah, like to find a way of remaining centered in my own sense of who I am while still sort of and allowing a lot of the sort of unnecessary baggage that comes along with it to sort of fall away, but to be really committed to finding that little beautiful seed at the middle of it um, and to just taking what feels valuable to us and to trust our own sense of value um, and our own sense of meaning and to let the rest just fall away, to let it fall away, and to trust that, um, that how we are is enough. I think to me that's the main, the main risk of being so open to feedback is when um, it leads us to, when it undermines our own sense of um, sort of right to be alive, you know, when it, when we take it too hard and think, um, because I think we are all flawed, but that like any living thing, I think that we also have as much a right to be here as any living thing does. And that it's not really because of, um, who we are, that we are allowed to be, but just that we are at all is what gives us the right to be here. And that we don't need to be so judgmental. Uh, no, well, judgment, I think, can be handy, but not so 
critical. Not so, we don't need to be so angry with ourselves <laughs> about who we are, but we can instead try and direct that anger into a productive uh, deepening of our connection with reality. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Your, um, your words and your thoughts and your work are greatly appreciated. Yours as well. <laughs> I can't imagine you're getting paid too much for doing this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you know, there's a lot of fulfillment in this. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I have many more questions and I look forward to the next time we come together and mm -hmm. get to chop it all up. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I just rambled all over the place. <laughs> but, oh well. Just, you know, take take what is of value to you, dear listener, and leave <laughs> disregard the rest. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>